Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, Mary Wollstonecraft and why her work still resonates today. Irish men and women in the Second World War, the clergy of Down and Connor over five centuries of turmoil and conflict. And finally, to end the show, we'll hear about the life and work of a Gaelic-Irish poet who is considered one of our greatest. Now, last week, we explored the life of Shackleton for the August bank holiday weekend. And two weeks ago, we discussed the misalliance between the Nazis and the German aristocracy and zoomed through a short history of Russia and more besides in our July book show. And if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to our website or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with Mary Wollstonecraft, her philosophy, her passion and her politics. A new book reads the work of Mary Wollstonecraft through the lens of the politics and culture of her own time, restoring her to her rightful place as a major 18th century thinker, reminding us why her work still resonates today. The book is called Wollstonecraft, Philosophy, Passion and Politics. It's published in hardback by Princeton University Press and costs about €25. Euro. The author is Silvana Tomaselli. And Silvana, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a very positive book because it's it looks at what inspired Wollstonecraft, what motivated her, what she loved in life, rather than just uh, cataloguing the things she disliked. Yes, I'm glad you see it like that. I When I began writing the book, I didn't want to go through all the things that she was critical of, and she was critical of just about everything. And I asked myself, well, what did she actually like, love? And I realized that despite the fact that I'd been working on her for quite some years, I wasn't sure what she, in fact, did enjoy in life. So I went through the most obvious things like painting and music, um, sculptures, um, reading, um, cooking. She didn't like cooking very much. Didn't have much interest in food. But anyway, to get a sense of her as a woman and then proceed from this to think about the way in which she thought about philosophy and morality. I'm very interested in painting and sculpture in the arts, uh, a wide cultural hinterland. Yes, absolutely. Partly because she had to earn a living reviewing and she was given to review books on on art, uh, books about nature, books about music. And so that helped educate her in many ways because she didn't have a formal education, but of course kindled her interest in a wide variety of subjects. She certainly wasn't afraid of taking on some of the, the major figures of the day, all of the men, including Edmund Burke, Rousseau, Adam Smith, that she was quite prepared to take them on and to hold her own. Oh, absolutely. She was very gifted. She could write very quickly. She could argue very well and basically had um, no... uh, no, she was no hold far, and particularly with 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 Burke, she was very hard on Burke, and her critique of Burke was very formative. So although she tried to ridicule him, undermine every one of his ideas, she carried on thinking about Burke and along the lines that she had criticised him uh, for the rest of her life. And so, oddly enough, the man she criticised most was most formative, in my view, uh, of her thinking as a whole, not least about the beautiful and the sublime, about women, but also about the Constitution, um, the way in which to think about politics and society. So in many ways, she lived with him intellectually uh, from 1790 onwards. Talk to me about some of her political beliefs and for example, her, her view of the French Revolution. She seemed to want, she seemed to wanted a revolution that would go further and that would lead to some kind of moral change. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm very glad that you say this because that's something that is often missed. She thought that the French revolutionary themselves didn't realize that in order for them to have the revolution that they supposedly wanted, they had to go further than a political revolution and 
begin a moral revolution, a revolution that would change individuals, men and women's conception of the purpose of life, uh, the meaning of life, and their relationship to one another. And that would require um, educating women, allowing them to partake in the social and political life of, the, in, of France. But of course, this could extend to any other country. So for as long as human beings didn't rethink the ends of life, didn't rethink their own expectation of themselves and others, no political change would really be significant. It would just be a change of personnel at the top, but not a substantive change, not a substantive social and economic change. And that is what she thought was necessary in the face of what she thought was a corrupting society, corrupting because increasingly um, focused on consumption. So, in a way, what kind of world was she looking for and how realistic do you think it would have been to achieve it? Well, perhaps less realistic then than it might be now. In, in some ways, she's more of a woman of the moment because of she would resonate with those um, who today uh, decry the focus on consumption, decry the way in which we exploit nature, um, decry the way in which we exploit one another. So revising our attitudes to ourselves and others is something that I think is not only possible, but one would say necessary, um, given the, the situation in the world today and, and the environmental implication of what we've been doing for the last 200 years. Um, how realistic it was at the time, well, um, I guess history shows it wasn't that realistic. But still lots of lessons for us today and a message that still resonates today. Absolutely. Well, congratulations on the book. It's called Wollstonecraft, Philosophy, Passion and Politics, published in hardback by Princeton University Press. It costs about €25. The author is Silvana Tomaselli. And Silvana, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Lovely to be with you. And thanks for your question. Bye. It was an absolute pleasure. And we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Over 133,000 Irish men and women served in the Second World War and a new edition of a book first published in 1999 continues the detailed examination of their contribution uh, from the sailors to the airmen uh, to the women and the the various different awards uh, they received as well. The book is called Irish Men and Women in the Second World War. It's published now in paperback by Four Courts Press and costs €29.95. The author is Richard Doherty. And Richard, thanks a million for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's incredible to think of the numbers uh, who did serve both from North and South. Uh, can you maybe talk to us about, about the numbers and the fact that they served in these different areas? You had soldiers fighting across the world, you had sailors involved, you had airmen, and then uh, you also had uh, significant numbers of Irish women uh, uh, serving in important roles. We, we did indeed. Uh, I mean, women served in... Uh, all of the services, the auxiliary services as they were known at the time, the, the Women's Royal Naval Service, uh, the Auxiliary Territorial Service of the Army and the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. Plus, of course, uh, quite a number of them got into Special Operations Executive. So you, you had women actually fighting with the French resistance, Irish women. Uh, you had various Irish personnel and all sorts of strange jobs um, and some not so strange, for example, the the uh, principal liaison officer between the UK and the United States High Command for most of the war was a man from Lurgan, Field Marshal Sir John Dill, who actually died in harness and is buried in Arlington National Cemetery. There are some very moving and powerful stories in the book. Could you maybe tell our listeners about Eugene Esmond and, and the contribution that he made? Esmond is... Uh, I hate to use the word favourite, but he is one of the characters who fascinates me most about the the Second World War. He he was a pilot in the fleet air arm uh, and had been before the war. But before that, 
he was the younger brother of a priest and he himself decided that he was going to be a priest but uh, left the seminary because he believed that he didn't have a, a vocation. Uh, he, he served in the, the Royal Air Force which actually owned the fleet air arm up until 1939, left, became an airline pilot and then came back in again at the beginning of the war. Uh, so in every sense, uh, a volunteer. Tremendous sense of duty. Uh, he was given a mission in February 1942 to try to stop the, the German battleships and heavy cruiser uh, getting out of the, the, the French Atlantic to uh, San Desert and up to uh, a port in Germany. And uh, everything that could go wrong went wrong. They were supposed to have an escort of 72 Spitfire fighters. Uh, only 12 turned up. And the six swordfish, which were biplane bombers, each carrying a torpedo, uh, literally undertook what was a, a, a no-hope mission. Every last one of them was shot down. Esmond pressed on his attack, uh, trying to uh, cripple the, the heavy cruiser Prince Eugen. And uh, he, he was killed in that uh, attempt. The, the crew of his aircraft included, uh, believe it or not, uh, uh, William Clinton, not the American William Clinton, but a, a naval airman uh, who did very, very uh, brave things as the, as the Germans were attacking. Uh, but the aircraft was eventually just shot out of the sky. Only six of the uh, 18 men who had taken part in the operation survived and were recommended by a Royal Air Force officer, which was unique uh, for decorations, particularly the Victoria Cross that went to Eugene Esmond. And to mark the fact that Esmond uh, um, was an Irishman, uh, and very, very firmly an Irishman, uh, King George VI actually arranged for the award of the Victoria Cross to his mother uh, to be made on St. Patrick's Day 1942. And it's a very, very short period between the actual operation in early February and the uh, and the investiture at Buckingham Palace on St. Patrick's Day. She was taken up to Belfast uh, from uh, their home, uh, from Dermina, and uh, flown across to England, uh, were joined by other members of the family in, uh, on Ireland's National Day to receive a, an award to a very, very courageous Irishman. One thing that really struck me was the geographical spread that I suppose when we think about maybe Irish involvement in the Second World War, we think of the Western theatre and we think of what was happening in Europe. But as you show, uh, Irish men and women were serving right around the world in the Middle East and in Burma and uh, and and that there is it, it is a global story as well as a European story. It's very much a global story. Among the, the people who fascinate me most are the doctors and the chaplains who are unarmed uh, and yet are in the front line doing, doing their job, uh, looking after soldiers, uh, uh, sailors and airmen. And one, one of the doctors who I didn't know, I knew him very well as a friend, was Desmond White, who was the senior medical officer with one of the Chindit groups in Burma behind the Japanese lines. Uh, and Desmond White took part in what was known as the Siege of the Blackpool Block. But this was after a, a, a very long uh, operation through the, the jungles of, of Burma or Myanmar, as it's now called. Uh, and it was literally uh, an operation in which that particular group of 111 Brigade uh, was being whittled down day by day, hour by hour, even minute by minute, by Japanese attacks, Japanese shell fire, uh, mortar fire, etc. And uh, Desmond looked after the wounded in a, in a hospital, which was called the main dressing station, really only tents. And uh, of course, the shells, the machine gun bullets and the mortars didn't differentiate. He was himself wounded, uh, but he continued to look after the casualties. His commanding um, or brigade commander, uh, Jack Masters, who later became a well-known novelist, uh, actually said that he, he didn't save a, no, a small number of lives under fire uh, as another uh, soldier, an infantryman who got the Victoria Cross posthumously did, but he had saved hundreds of lives over 200 days under constant fire. Uh, Masters and Four other officers recommended Desmond White for a Victoria Cross. 
He wasn't given the Victoria Cross. He was given the next highest gallantry decoration, the Distinguished Service Order. It's also interesting how modest many of those uh, were who who served and uh, who really didn't want to be honoured or recognised for their contribution. And many felt that it was the right thing to do and a service that was uh, that needed to be given. That was very, very much um, the attitude of so so many of those men and women. Uh, when I was researching my, my first book way back over 30 years ago, uh, I was interviewing one soldier who had actually served with my, my late father and was a good friend of my father. And he said to me, Richard, whatever you do, don't try to make us out to be heroes. We weren't heroes. We were the boys who went where we were sent and did as we were bid. And that that's the attitude of so, so many of them. And the more somebody put their necks out, the more likely they were to have that attitude. Uh, you find bombast coming from people who were in relatively safe jobs, but those who did the the really dangerous work didn't talk very much about it. And and also then finally, uh, Richard, it's interesting that it's not just people who were uh, involved on the combat side, but also doctors and nurses, uh, clergy, that uh, there were a wide number of different types of roles that people served in. There were. I mean, if, if we look at, at chaplains, the, the, the clergy, uh, you've got two brothers from County Kerry, the, the brothers Kelleher, both both of them uh, chaplains. Uh, one of them officially, uh, Dan Kelleher, who was awarded the Military Cross at Casino in April of, of 1944, rescuing wounded, uh, carrying them under shell fire to the, the dressing station. And I was actually told by one uh, former officer of the Royal Irish Fusiliers, the regiment to which Father Dan was attached, that if Father Dan had been with an English brigade, he would have received the Victoria Cross. But Irish men expected their padres to do that sort of thing and take that sort of risk. His brother, Jeremiah, who was a Columban father in, in Burma, attached himself during the long retreat out of Burma for the the, the, the British garrison there to the 1st Battalion of the Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers. And uh, in what wouldn't sound remarkable today, but was remarkable uh, in quotation marks in 1942 he gave holy communion to the commanding officer of the Enniskilling Fusiliers uh, about 24 hours before that man was killed but that man was a Belfast Church of Ireland soldier not a Catholic but Jerry Kelleher didn't make any difference he was prepared as all chaplains are uh, to serve people of any faith and no faith at all Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining us tonight and uh, reminding us of the contribution, the extraordinary contribution of so many men and women, Irish men and women in the Second World War. The book is called Irish Men and Women in the Second World War, published in paperback now by Four Courts Press. It costs €29.95. The author is Richard Doherty. And Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book tells the story of 19th century Dublin through human-animal relationships and it offers a unique perspective on ordinary life in the Irish metropolis during a century of significant change and reform. The book is called Civilised by Beasts, Animals and Urban Change in 19th century Dublin. It's published in hardback by Manchester University Press and I'm delighted to welcome the author Juliana Edelman to the show tonight. Juliana, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Patrick. It's a fascinating approach to it because you're 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 exploring and you're discovering so much about urban change in Dublin in the nineteenth century by looking at, at this angle that perhaps we mightn't have considered before. Yes, I think uh, animals get overlooked, I suppose, in the history of the city because we think of the city as a as a human space, and actually, the nineteenth century city was definitely just as much an animal space as it was a human space. And can you tell us about the period that you're looking at? Because it's pretty much from about a 70-year period. And what is that relationship between animals and these changes in, in, in the city that are taking place during that time? So I guess they sort of fall into several categories. And one of the most significant changes that happens between, I look at about 1830 to 1900, um, uh, one of the most significant changes over that time is just the rise of the sanitary movement or the public health movement. 
And so a lot of domestic animals that would have formed, um, you know, part of everyday life in terms of work, but particularly in terms of food, um, become the target of perhaps unwanted attention from sanitary authorities. So that's one of the kind of big changes. The, the idea that you would accept a city that smells of, you know, animal manure and living animals and is full of their wastes um, from slaughter, but also from life, you know, just becomes a thing that people find no longer acceptable over that period. And then I suppose the other things are just, uh, you know, an attempt to kind of revive the city, particularly after the, the ravages of the famine, and to introduce new kind of forms of cultural life. Um, and one of, you know, many of those center around uh, the display or the discussion of animals. And one of those that I look at is, is the rise of the zoo. And how difficult was it to find animals being mentioned in the archives? Well, it's not very difficult to find them in particular ways. So, you know, as I mentioned, lots of the animals, thousands and thousands of the animals in the city are for food or for transportation. And those animals are accounted for in loads of different kind of official ways. So they're counted in the agricultural statistics. Um, they are, um, you know, dairies and um, butcher shops have to register and give accounts of their animals. They have to increasingly um, account for animal diseases, so they're inspecting places. So all that kind of official information is, is really prevalent. And it, actually, after a while, um, when you're looking for it, you, it just, it's almost overwhelming, that, you know, because the Victorians love a, a good statistic. So they collected enormous quantities of numerical data, empirical data about the animals in the city in an attempt to kind of impose some sort of order on what they increasingly saw as, as insanitary chaos. Um, but what I was looking for that I found more difficult to find is, you know, we spend a lot of time now, you know, talking about how we think about animals, how we should treat our pets. You know, there was that whole uproar about, um, you know, the um, horse uh, trainer sitting on the dead horse, you know, and that kind of emotive stuff of the sort of ordinary interactions with animals that people have as pets or even horses that they might have had a closer relationship with the, that they kept for, um, for personal use, that was a lot harder to find. Like you can find poetry um, and sort of silly stories and things like that. But I looked through diary after diary after diary, you know, just thinking that people would talk about their pets or even talk about their experience of encountering animals in some way in the city. And they really don't. And I guess after a while, I started to assume that it was just because they were so common that maybe it just didn't, it didn't deserve a remark. So the, the things that deserved remarks were, you know, I've just seen this performing lion on the stage, or I've just seen the, you know, Toby, the sapient pig. Um, but, you know, the dog only deserved a remark when the dog died. And you mentioned po like songs as well, like uh, yeah. very interesting stuff from the popular songs of the era. Yeah. So the, I mean, the popular songs were kind of a um, another way to fill in that sort of maybe cultural experience of animals. And so um, two that I looked at were one, which was a kind of response to the dog tax. So the dog tax was introduced in 1865 in an attempt to really to reduce the numbers of dogs and particularly straying dogs. And the idea was really for the countryside, but it, it affected the city as well. Um, and there was an immediate understanding that that would have a class angle and that people who couldn't afford to pay the dog tax, who might have previously kept a dog, would probably... Um, you know, either let their dogs go or kill them, as as did seem to happen. Um, and so the dog, the song, um, which took another tune, um, you know, from a from an existing popular song and changed the words, um, you know, was all these dogs basically speaking up about their objection to the dog tax and how terrible it was going to be for them. And you know, one of the dogs declaring the, that he was going to go bite the legs out from under every bobby or every policeman. And then another song which kind of looked at the relationship between women and pig keeping. Um, and I don't think it was specific to Dublin. It seems to be one of those songs that was circulating and got adjusted for, you know, the locale, whatever it was. Um, Peg Briggs and her pigs, who um, attracts a suitor who's really interested in her pigs um, and how profitable they might be and sells them off along with uh, Peg into the bargain.
You also can learn a lot by looking at butchers and uh, what they're interested in getting up to in this period. Yeah, there were, um, it was kind of like publicans in terms of the uh, social stratus, maybe maybe a little below publicans possibly, but the same kind of person that I think David Dixon uh, refers to as sort of the shopocracy of Dublin and that sort of lower middle layer that's kind of becoming increasingly important um, in the city. And the butchers really feel like they're being put upon as the sanitarians are kind of assuming more power in terms of particularly within um, what the corporation is trying to do in terms of regulating the city. And so a lot of regulations are imposed on the butchers. Um, And they're kind of, um, I mean, they're sort of the test case for a lot of that sanitary legislation because they are, you know, creating smells and wastes that people don't like. But they also have that sort of moral taint of, of killing uh, animals and, and of doing it in ways that's, um, you know, where people could see and experience. You know, they could hear the scream of pigs being killed. They could see the blood running into the gutters. Um, and because it tended to be done on a kind of cyclical basis with the weekly markets, you know, you, one can imagine that, um, you know, that there was a lot of it on particular days of the week or indeed during particular times of the year, for example, when, you know, you can't keep pigs, uh, you're, you can keep pigs, but you can't keep pig meat because it, it will taint and so you're killing a lot of pigs for the purposes of curing um, curing ham and bacon. And, uh, yeah, so they they really get a lot of attention from the Dublin Corporation and from the Public Health Committee in particular. And you also see people campaigning for animal rights, including uh, Francis Maria Thompson, so that there's, there is a, a growing interest in, in how these animals are treated. Absolutely. And I mean, I think the thing that was interesting for me looking at the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was how much of a, um, you know, how class and religion, which are things that, of course, we consider in the context of the whole 19th century of, of Irish history as being kind of really key aspects of almost any question come into that issue of animal rights like they do so many other things um, because that society initially is really, um, you know, it's run by a sort of upper middle class and wealthier, um, largely as far as I can tell initially, Protestants attempts to kind of get um, religious support outside of a, a limited Protestant community fail um, even though that's quite important in sort of the story of the SPCA in London, for example, and indeed seems to be somewhat important in Belfast, um, getting the support of the local religious community. And uh, they don't get any kind of Catholic bishops to back their plan. And most of the um, people who are working with animals in ways that might bring up issues of cruelty, such as the butchers and the way that they're slaughtering or the cab drivers and the way that they're driving horses, um, those people tend to be relatively poor Catholics. So I think it it looks like the kind of thing that if you're a bit of a canny politician, maybe you don't really want to get involved because, um, you know, the idea that the, the police would be cracking down on poor humans for the sake of animal lives didn't appeal to everyone. Okay, well, Juliana, it's a wonderful book, a brilliant work of scholarship, and thank you so much for joining us tonight to discuss it. It's called Civilised by Beasts, Animals and Urban Change in 19th Century Dublin. It's published in hardback by Manchester University Press. Uh, The author, Juliana Edelman. And Juliana, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book highlights the major contribution of the clergy of Down and Connor to the church during pre-Reformation times and the penal era, as well as the crucial period of expansion in the 19th century. The book is called The Clergy of Down and Connor, 1400 to 1900. It's published in hardback by Ulster Historical Foundation and it costs about €23. Uh, The two authors, uh, George O'Hanlon and Ambrose Macaulay, sadly passed away uh, before publication but I'm delighted to be joined by Father Derek McEulla Cotton and John Gordon, the Vice President of the Ulster Historical Foundation, to discuss the work. Uh, you're both very welcome. Thank you very much. John, can I begin with you? This book covers 500 years of history and some incredibly big events and historical milestones. Can you tell me maybe a little bit about the project and the research that was involved? Yes, indeed, Patrick. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the book is really 
a consequence uh, and leads on from the publication by Monsignor James Laverty, who published a very scholarly work on the history of the diocese down in Connor in four volumes, plus a volume on the bishops from 1878 to 1887. The library in St. Malachy's College, Belfast, actually is named after him as his personal collection of books and manuscripts are held there. In 1945, a digest of the five volumes was published uh, by a priest, um, Father Fullen, and this really is uh, the follow-on to that. Uh, Father George O'Hanlon, Canon George O'Hanlon, as he was, um, produced biographical sketches and notes on the various priests in the diocese of Down and Connor, and Monsignor Macaulay, after the death of Father O'Hanlon, uh, edited those, and once uh, uh, Monsignor Ambrose passed away, uh, the documents passed to the Ulster Historical for us to try and compile the book, and, and that really was the core of this updated book of biographical sketches of the priests who served in the diocese from uh, 1400 to 1900. And there are some wonderful biographies there. We might discuss some of them. Father Dara, can, can we talk about maybe the background to the Diocese of Down and Connor? Originally, they were they were separate, but uh, quite early on in this story, they were joined together. They were indeed. I suppose I put a bit of a disclaimer at this stage and say, I, I don't claim to be an historian, but a keen amateur, let's just say, like a lot of people. But the Diocese, diocese of Down and Connor were finally brought together in 1453, there have been a few attempts to take um, control of it at that stage, but it was actually uh, Thomas Knight who been who was a Benedictine prior of Benedictine monastery um, in a place called Daventry near Northampton. He was given that given that role, and um, interesting note that he also had a another role as well. For some of that time, was also an auxiliary bishop of London. And 500 years is a is a obviously a huge um, period of time. But it's fascinating, really, just to see the the different ways in which you progressed over the years and covering huge uh, historic events, things like, um, you know, obviously Henry VIII and his huge impact on the country whenever he got himself declared as the the head of the Church of England and the way in which he tried to exert that influence in Ireland as well, and the way in which priests over that time of the diocese served um, to the very best of their ability, often under very excruciating circumstances and many of them losing their lives. Um, one of particular note being a former bishop of the diocese, now blessed in the church, blessed Conor Devani, who was martyred in um, 1612. And then obviously as, as time goes on, you had the way in which um, the church often lost control of territory and ministered very quietly, often with the use of religious orders like the Franciscans and and Dominicans, and then in time, whenever the, the, the penal laws took place and began to regress, you had other huge um, the, the events that took place, such as the establishment of the new college and the way in which the, the training of priests began to be focused there and to a, um, a decreasing extent on the seminaries abroad in Rome. But Donna Connor, in, in the midst of that, was just constant and, and faithful and and ministering, and it's always fascinating to put the present in perspective when you hear of the shortage of clergy in, in centuries gone by. It obviously rings a bell to the present and the way in which priests often had to minister to multiple parishes. And I'm thinking that's ringing a bell too. Um, but it's a real, um, a real testament to the, to the great work and of the faithfulness of the people of God. And he's a priest of servant. And John, we get a very interesting insight into, I suppose, the difference between the archivist and the historian here in the way the work is compiled and the way it's it's being assessed, and 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 even in terms of this, the, the extraordinary contribution it makes to our understanding of so many of the great the great periods here, the the penal era before that, the Reformation, and then that period of expansion in the nineteenth century. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, the archivist in this story is uh, Canon George O'Hanlon. Um, and like most priests of his time, uh, he multitasked. He served the parish and was parish priest of St. Joseph's Antrim, Glen Ravel, and uh, he looked after the diocese uh, archive uh, from the 1983 to 2014. 
Um, and it's really a, a thanks to his immense knowledge of the diocese that he was able to prepare the notes um, and updating effectively uh, Monsignor Laverty's original work. Uh, that was taken over um, by uh, Monsignor Ambrose Macaulay uh, after Father O'Hanlon died in 2015. And Monsignor Macaulay was a, quite a renowned uh, historian. Um, he was a Cushendall man, a Glens of Antrim man, and uh, obtained his degree in theology and completed a doctor in ecclesiastical history in the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. So he came with very high credentials and is probably well known in historical circles for his uh, biographies of uh, uh, Archbishop Crawley and Bishop McAllister uh, and uh, a number of well-known uh, history books. So when he took over uh, Father O'Hanlon's work, uh, he added his own perspective and, and, and historical knowledge uh, and gave quite a number of insights to the biographical sketches. Uh, and it was only when the, the Monsignor passed in 2019 that the then Bishop of Down and Connor, um, uh, Bishop Noel Trainer, passed the notes to the Ulster Historical Foundation and the particular Dr. William Robson, the research director, that allowed us to continue with the uh, project. And, and, and indeed, thanks to Father Derek uh, for his sterling work in keeping uh, records of what priests served and what parishes were we able to uh, expand upon the uh, notes that Monsignor and Father George had put together and, and, and if you like, expand the book into a much more uh, broader record of the priests in the diocese during this period. And the Ulster Historical Foundation has done an absolutely brilliant job on it. Uh, a beautifully produced book, uh, over 200 pages, colour, hardback. And John, are there any of the biographies that stand out for you? Do you have any favourites in terms of uh, the priests who are covered and, and some of the stories? Because as, as we were saying, it does cover such such momentous times in Irish history. Yes, I think for, for me, um, uh, there are numerous uh, stories, but in, in particular, uh, the, the one story that stands out for me, particularly because it's associated with, uh, uh, if you like, the modern era in Belfast, is that uh, on the Shankill Road, uh, and very few people would be aware of this, there were four streets just off Agnes Street, right in the heart of the Shankill Road, named after Catholic priests in the 1830s. Uh, Meenan Street, Loftus Street, Brennan Street and Blaney Street. Now, sadly, due to uh, uh, renovation and blight, um, uh, only one of those streets remained, Blaney Street. Uh, and Father Blaney and his uh, fellow uh, priests uh, served the people of the Lower Shangle and the Lower Falls in the 1830s in Belfast, during which there was a very severe outbreak of cholera. And such was the work that these four priests conducted that uh, Belfast City Council named Four Street in the heart of the Shangle after them. And I think that's an extraordinary story, uh, particularly nowadays where uh, one of those streets still remains and, and it still uh, reflects that story going back. And, and, and it's one that I think should be uh, well known uh, to the people of, of both sides of the feastland. Very good, and gives us a great insight into the geography of the area as well. Father Derek, do you have any favourite biographies? Well, I'm going to be slightly biased here. Um, I'm parish priest in North Belfast in the parish of Sacred Heart. So actually one of the ones that struck me was one of my predecessors whose centenary of his death occurs next year on the 19th of March, James Kearney O'Neill. Um, he was from Colpitran up in County Antrim, um, like many uh, guy of that time, studied in Somalia's College in Maynooth. But really, one of his key contributions was the foundation of the Knights of Columbanus, um, an organization of laymen who's really, in fact, founded it, trying to put them to um, service of the church by using their time and their and their talent and the, their, their resources and generosity in, in every respect. And there was a great way in which, um, having, having done that, that revised to that day, even to the extent, quite poignantly, um, a couple weeks ago, we laid to rest one of our knights from the parish, but again, a man who would have been very much in the model of Father, Father O'Neill. 
And Father Derek, is it a diocese that faces pressures now because of, I suppose, recent challenges like COVID and then uh, deeper challenges in terms of, of, of numbers and, and uh, I suppose, challenges the church are facing more widely? History gives you a great perspective. And, you know, when you look at a book such as this, which covers 500 years and you put in the names of all the priests and you think, OK, well, 500 years. 1,056 priests, two a year. And you're thinking, well, we're, in a, we're at about par, despite what we, what we might imagine in terms of the current, the current challenges. I suppose if we look at things decade by decade, things can seem um, tough at times. And yet there's a real resilience which is there. History, is, like many things, can repeat itself in the church in some respects, in terms of the times of plenty and times where numbers window, and times when you have to juggle m- many jobs. Um, I, I joke with some of my colleagues that um, that they would need to buy a new hat stand for, for one of their colleagues for the fact they're wearing so many hats, except for the fact they're already wearing so many hats themselves. But it's um yeah, it's powerful to dance as it does face challenges, but there's a great there's a great um energy there and even even now we have um, we've half a dozen men studying for the diocese and a number of others. Please God, beginning with us in September. So again, the Lord continues to call and um, people continue to respond. But more and more, it's not just about it's not just about priests or indeed um, clergy in general. It's about the whole church working together and listening to what the Spirit is saying to the church in that context. Everybody getting involved in the church and playing their role. Well, my thanks to uh, both of you for joining me tonight to talk about this hugely important piece of archival research. The book is called The Clergy of Down and Connor, 1400 to 1900, published in hardback by the Ulster Historical Foundation. It costs about €23. The authors are George O'Hanlon and Ambrose McCauley, sadly uh, both deceased. So uh, uh, it was a pleasure talking to Father Derek McKeola, uh, Cotton and John Gordon, the Vice President of the Ulster Historical Foundation tonight. Uh, Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Goffrey Fionn O'Dolig from Ballydaly on the present-day Cork Kerry border is one of Ireland's greatest poets and a new book seeks to make him and his poetry accessible to a much wider audience. The book is called Goffrey Fionn O'Dolig, Poems to the English. It's published in paperback by the Aubain Historical Society and costs €20. Euro. And I'm delighted to welcome the author John Minahan to the show tonight. John, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Patrick. Glad to be here. Can you tell us about this very interesting poet? Because he is you know, critically considered one of Ireland's greatest poets, but yet I suspect many of our listeners will never have heard of him. I'm sure that's true. Um, well, he was born, uh, that's the first thing that's not clear, sometime around the year 1300 probably. Um, he um, was educated as a poet in North Monster in Clare with the McGrath family. Uh, and um, he afterwards became a leading poet, recognised as a leading poet in, in Ireland, uh, at the latest by about the 1350s, when he would have been, let's say, 40, 50, 40s, 50 years. Um, he, um, oh, when he died, uh, which was 1387, he was described as the, uh, the chief poet um, of Ireland, or Bell of Meharan. Um, he wrote poetry for many uh, people uh, around the country. Um, one of them was, uh, in, at least one of them was in the north, an O'Donnell. Uh, he also composed poetry for McCarthy's and um, the Earls of Desmond in, in Munster. And uh, I, in my book, I focused on the uh, the three extant poems to the Earl of, Earls of Desmond, because um, they were people with an English tradition. They were outsiders in a sense, and yet insiders. They, were, they had a foot in two camps, and uh, Goffrey had to deal with this. And um, two of the poems are about attempting to solve serious problems which had arisen. And a third poem is to uh, a young man, the son of the current Earl, 
who is um, about to go off to France to serve with the English king in the um, Hundred Years' War. The book is focused on that. Um, it's focused towards those three poems, and um, I try to... Um, to make them accessible to um, without explaining too much, because I think too much explanation is fatal and it's also unnecessary. Uh, this poet is is not so um, indirect, or um, his his um, manner of speaking is is not that uh, difficult to, to 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 get in tune with. And the poems are of this; they are indeed of huge. You know, historical and cultural uh, significance and interest, and uh, you do get an insight into, uh, I suppose, how difficult some of the the political circumstances of the time were. Oh, they were exceedingly difficult, and um, this is one of the things that isn't appreciated enough, I think, um, by um, by by historians. That uh, it was really very difficult to see your way through. The Ireland that uh, was there at that time, because the the English invasion in the 1170s had disrupted whatever was developing in terms of um, native Irish kingship, and um, uh, well, afterwards the um, uh, the the people um, on the Gaelic side, uh, the, uh, the the poets wanted Gaelic culture to continue and wanted the culture of Gaelic kingship to continue. And yet the country was, as it were, torn to pieces um, because the, the, um, the English, uh, the, the colonists, were in many of the most, um, uh, the richest lands, uh, the most important places They were very well positioned. Uh, so that... Um, uh, th- the first thing was that the poets uh, offered them uh, a new vision of themselves. They offered them a vision of themselves as Irish power seekers, as basically as Irish kings, that they too could get into the um, uh, get into the business of attempting to develop their kingships and uh, attempting ultimately to be High King of Ireland. Uh, this was the perspective that they had, even though it was a very very difficult perspective at, at the time. Uh, the the other point is that of course this uh, any any uh, idea of uh, the English in Ireland developing their power contradicted the aspirations of the Gaelic lords to develop theirs. So um, somebody like Geoffrey Fionn was writing was composing for both sides. And this is why he's sometimes called a hypocrite and a twister and a tiger dohev and all these things. But um, I would consider him and other poets like him more as a pluralist. They genuinely wanted everybody to have their best chance and something would uh, develop in the end. They were very patient people. Very good. And in a way, what you see is uh, the poet acting is almost kind of like a not a, I wouldn't say manipulator, but kind of directing these lords into uh, appreciating Gaelic culture and becoming a part of the culture. I think so. Yes, um, they they um, they were inviting. They always composed in an inviting style, and um, also they were not exclusionary in the way they addressed people. If people had uh, an English aspect, a British or, well, English at that time aspect to their culture, uh, they did not try to erase that. They, um, they, they celebrated that also. And um, that's very clear in the, uh, in the poem to the uh, second Earl of Desmond, um, young Morris, where, um, where he's going off to, um, to, to, to France. Um, on the one hand, um, the poet expresses jealousy that uh, he's angry with the King of England because he's taking this man away from Ireland. But on the other hand, um, his, um, uh, his relationship with the English King is afterwards um, described very positively. Very good. And I don't know if you'd be able to maybe just read a couple of lines from the poetry to give our, our listeners a sense of the magic in the music. Uh, well, um, I can uh, I, I can attempt that. The um, the problem is that I don't have the necessary training. Uh, the people who did this 
studied for at least four years to get their, um, uh, their, their, their voices properly tuned. I haven't done it, so um, I'm afraid that if any of those trained people ever heard me, um, they, uh, that they would have a good laugh. But I'll try. Uh, there is a passage where uh, Guthrie describes uh, Lou of the Long Hand coming to Tara at the time when Tara was occupied by the Thuhidevanan. And he comes to the door and meets the doorman, and um, he's asked who he is, and he says, I'm a poet from Awen, uh, from Awen Maka. Um, he doesn't give his name. The doorman goes to report to the Thuhidevanan, and he says, there's a man at the door who's hard to equal. He's got all arts in his power. Um, so uh, the Thuhidevanan guess that this is probably Lou, and the doorman speaks again, and um, I will read um, uh, three, verse, uh, three short verses um, which follow, uh, and first in English in the translation and then in Irish. To match the man at the door for beauty, best go slowly. No creature made of earth or water should attempt it. His body, his face, his hair, pick of perfection. All these in form and color of lime and bronze and blood. His tongue is sweeter than the strings of fashioned lutes for cozy sleep played by expert fingers. That was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, John. Uh, time has been, but really impressed the way you've been able to bring the music and indeed the magic uh, to life for us. Thank you very much, Patrick. Very good. The book is called Goffrey Fionn Odolig, Poems to the English. It's published by the Obain Historical Society and costs €20. Euro. The author there, uh, John Minahan. And John, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be exploring the links between the Vikings and America investigating the rise and fall of the Orange Order during the Great Famine and finding out how textiles made the world. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History on News Talk.